Welcome to another CPA COVID-19 audio update. My name's Eric. I'm the communications officer at the CPA. My name is Dr. Heather Prime. I'm a clinical psychologist working in the area of children, adolescents, and families. I work primarily as a researcher, so I've been at McMaster University for the past several years, and I'm transitioning this summer to York University as an assistant professor. And my work really studies the patterns in uh, child development and mental health, and really I'm focused on looking at family dynamics and relationships and and the importance of families to children's well-being and development. And I I also work as a clinician, uh, you know, part-time doing assessment and therapy with children and families. Okay, that's uh, an awful lot of things that bring some expertise uh, to the subject we're talking about today. Uh, You just uh, published a paper with Mark Wade and Dylan T. Brown, Risk and Resilience in Family Well-Being During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And in doing so, you took a look at a lot of uh, previous studies that had been done uh, in stressful situations like uh, the 80s farm crisis and the 2008 recession to sort of predict where we're going to go with this COVID-19. Can you give me a brief overview of uh, what this study was about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's been a lot of concern from professionals, the scientific community, and and personally, we have concerns about the threats of COVID-19 and the the social consequences on mental health and, you know, where we're really wondering about whether this public health crisis may quickly turn into a mental health crisis as well. Um, And in many ways, COVID-19 is unprecedented, of course, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how it will play out for families, um, but at the same time, as, as you've mentioned, we, we do know quite a bit about what happens to families in the context of adversity, um, including some severe adversities, um, natural disasters, 9-11, and experiences of war, economic recessions. Um, there's been a lot of, of nice research done looking at family stress and family resilience. So we really turn to that literature to think about, um, you know, how do families respond to adversity? How do they restructure? How do their patterns of interaction with one another change their routines, their rituals? What leads some families to suffer more during this time and and others to come through seemingly uh, unscathed or in some situations more cohesive? Um, And our hope really is that this this can serve as a conceptual model for guiding research uh, uh, for COVID-19 specifically so that we can look at these processes specifically in this context, Uh, but also more importantly for um, immediate prevention and intervention work to help mitigate the potential impact uh, on families. And uh, you mentioned rituals. That's something I wanted to ask about. Uh, You did something that I very much appreciate, and that is Mm -hmm. that you wrote a Twitter thread about the paper uh, with three Mm -hmm. significant takeaways. And since I consume things in small portions like Twitter, that was absolutely wonderful for me. And uh, the first takeaway that you said uh, in, in your Twitter thread was family relationships, routines and rituals are at risk. What do you mean by rituals in a family? Yeah, so rituals are um, one of the uh, key patterns of how families engage together um, that can really take on symbolic emotional meaning. So they have its emotional significance. 
significance um, and can serve to really strengthen the family in terms of their values and emotional, you know, cohesion. And that, I mean, this will look different, of course, for different families across cultures. Um, and it, and in some ways it can look like routines, right? So a routine, um, families might routinely sit down for family dinner. Um, and w when it, it becomes a ritual, when it's, it, you bring meaning to it as well. So you start to talk about, um, you know, in my family growing up at the cottage, we would say, what was your good thing today? Um, and so it becomes a more meaningful experience. Uh, these could be uh, spiritual, religious rituals, um, or they could be uh, COVID-19 related uh, rituals, things like the um, pots and pans and, and 7 p.m. Um, uh, celebrations. I don't know, you know, for healthcare workers, I don't know if we call it a celebration, but... Um, well, yeah, an acknowledgement, acknowledgement at least, yes, right, yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> um, or, you know, continuing um, traditions such as celebrating birthdays, you're seeing the cars driving by with happy birthday signs. So it's really those uh, shared family um, routines that become ritualistic by, uh, through emotional significance. And so one of the reasons that's under threat, presumably, is that, uh, well, for example, uh, my wife and I sit down to have supper together and we don't really do the, what did you do today anymore? Mm -hmm. Because she's right there <laughs> and I saw everything she did today and she saw everything I did today. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. absolutely. And you end up finding yourself having the same conversations over and over again and it's it becomes it becomes tricky right to have those new conversations or meaningful conversations and one thing you know i, I one thing i read i believe it was esther perel uh she's a psychologist uh, who works with couples and she was talking about the importance of really setting boundaries on um and this gets a bit into routines uh on your day so if you can of course we're all facing a lot of unfamiliar and stressful uh factors but if you can you know if your if your work desk is your kitchen table can you put you can you physically put away your work and say okay this is the end of work time even if you're going to come back to it later this is the end of work time work stuff's away um we're setting the table and we're turning off the tv and we're having a conversation and and even that could, you know, become a new ritual if you bring something new to that um, situation versus maybe before you didn't have meals together as much or you did keep the TV on or you didn't make that special time. And so it's it's important to really in these days where we're feeling like a bit of Groundhog Day for, for you know, for those who are um, at home and they're not go they're not going to work, um, you know, to make those. Uh, separate times. This is work time. This is play time. Um, this is the time where we're all going to look at each other in the eyes and have a meaningful conversation, whatever that looks like for, for that family. So is this what you mean by if nourished and reimagined, uh, routine and ritual can also serve to protect children from the social disruptions of COVID-19? Yeah. So, so by nourished, I meant, you know, if we pay attention to it, if we are intentional about, um, you know, this is a thing we want our family to do. I think for a lot of us, I'll speak personally, you know, when this, when COVID first came about, we all kind of went into 
um, panic mode. So routines were lost, rituals were lost. Um, it was kind of, you know, consume Twitter and CBC all day and then, you know, talk about COVID all night. Um, and so there was a point and, you know, and that I would encourage in families where you can say, okay, we're here now. Um, what do we want this to look like? Um, wh what's important to us? And it, when I say reimagined, I really mean, you know, of course things aren't going to look the way they looked before, uh, right now at least, and, and, and maybe for a long time. Um, so what's a new way that we can do this? And, and acknowledging, you know, this is, it's so sad that you're not going to be able to see your friends or have your friends over for your birthday. Um, we were planning that Star Wars party and you've been looking forward to that all year. Um, and so acknowledging that, but then also reimagining it around, okay, how could we get um, Star Wars themed uh, party favors to all of our friends and meet up on Zoom? So that's right. the kind of creative uh, difference that I think we're really seeing in families um, in a lot of ways. And, and so I, in some ways, I'm, I'm naming the process that I'm seeing by saying, this is what you're doing. You know, you're, you're keeping these rituals and that's important. It's extremely important for helping fostering hope and optimism for, for not just kids, but for, for the family unit. The second takeaway that you suggest that we should uh, take from the paper is socially disadvantaged families are at greater risk of disruptions uh, to family well-being and child adjustment. And you specifically point to pre-existing financial, psychological, or structural vu vulnerabilities. What is a structural vulnerability uh, that could put somebody more at risk? I, yeah, I think it's funny you comment on that because it was sufficiently vague on for Twitter. Um, I think I was kind of enca um, encompassing the the families that are um, either marginalized families or families experiencing racism um, or you know ethnic minorities situation uh, and also including families that are due to structural reasons. Uh, essential workers, so they're going, um, they're going to work. They're facing different stressors than many um, more dis more advantaged families. Yeah, that's so, kind of where I thought it was going. Was yeah. the people who have no choice but to continue working at the grocery store, or at the gas station, um, mm -hmm. you know, as a delivery person, you know, have mm -hmm. no choice but to keep doing whatever the work is uh, that puts them on the front lines, basically. Exactly, and of course that um, that brings, as as we know and as we're seeing in some of the disproportionate rates of um, COVID cases and deaths in in um, in minority groups, um, were th that's a real risk in terms of physical well-being, and it's also going to be creating additional risk for family well-being and family resilience or family stress. Um, with all of the stress that comes with the threats to, to health, but also um, the childcare issues, um, psychological distress, parenting stress. Um, we really, you know, there is a concern that these this will have ripple effects on disadvantaged families in many ways, psychological and um, in terms of personal health. And you say in your paper that previous uh, stressful situations uh, – economic recessions, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. did lead to more, um, or I guess, less positive 
parenting behaviors, uh, an mm-hmm. increase in spanking you pointed to, for example, and a few other mm-hmm. things. Um, what sort of previous studies uh, talked about that and, and what did you find? So there's been um, a lot of nice work coming out of um, the 2008 economic recession um, where I'm, I'm just kind of picturing a few studies here uh, that all came out of, uh, you know, these stu- natural experiments. So they're studying families um, through, uh, they were already studying families and then the recession hit. And so then they can look at changes from before and after, uh, before to after the recession. And it creates this natural design um, where, you know, you can't um, randomly assign families to um financial instability right that wouldn't you wouldn't do that ethically um, right but in this situation you're studying families and then it hits and you see okay what is the impact of this on these families and so it these studies were really showing that families experiencing um threats to job loss financial instability and even actually they're showing um just kind of financial uncertainty so concerns about their local um employment rates or um uh, local markets that local job losses that sort of thing just the concerns are really um can really increase caregiver distress and so we talk a lot about this in the paper is this funneling through caregiver well-being and caregiver parent I'll use kind of interchangeably. So when parents are, are facing, in this situation, the recession, it was all financial um, concerns, financial pressure, uh, that, that can lead to increased mental health symptoms, parenting stress, um, psychological distress. And the important thing that you're kind of linking it to is then, as we all know, um, when, when we're fe- feeling more stressed, then our emotional, psychological, uh, resources are drained. So what can then happen is parents are more reactive to children, um, less um, less able to pause and consider the uh, most helpful way to respond in a situation. Um, <laughs> is that a nice way of putting it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. but but really, it's the reactiveness. So your your resources are drained, and it beca- can become a bit of a breeding ground for what we call these coercive interactions. Where if a child, you know, a five year old, you, you say, Johnny, it's time to go to bed, and he throws his toy. Um, you know, when we're at our wits' end. Um, it can be very easy to explode and say, you know, that's the last time you did this. You've done this every night this week, get to bed or we're not having any bedtime stories and you've lost your iPad for the next week and, or whatever it is um, that can then escalate the child's behavior. And, and, and you get this increasing negativity um, that really uh, what we try and support in caregivers is, you know, we know how stressed you are. We know, um, how, you know, it's a real, this isn't a joke, right? The, the financial burden that families are feeling. Um, and so it's really about kind of harm reduction. You know, what can you, despite these, um, the stress you're experiencing, how can we mitigate that within the home? And is that taking a breath and leaving the room? Is it tapping your partner in and saying, I can't deal with bedtime tonight? 
or maybe it is, you know, you can reset and say, you know what, Johnny, I know you really wanted to play longer. It's time for a bath. Let's have a bath and go choose the books you want to read tonight. So, right. Uh, and you did say also that we must prioritize access to quality family-centered care for mm-hmm. vulnerable families. What is family-centered care uh, outside of the things that you can do in your own home? So what I mean by family-centered care is um, is working with the family system. So that doesn't mean that, and, and let's talk, we're going to talk telehealth right now because we're not going in to therapy offices. Right. Um, so I don't mean, you know, necessarily getting all two, three, four, five members, family members on Zoom, but maybe, <laughs> you know, that could happen. But, but more so I think about working with caregivers and helping them um, to really look at some of the processes we're talking about in this paper. So um, to, for, to help them reflect on how are you doing? Um, how is your coupleship doing? How are you guys managing in terms of sharing parenting duties? Are you guys aligned or are you finding that to be an added stress? Um, how's Johnny doing? What happens when Johnny is um, acting up? Are you finding yourself uh, more or less reactive? And so family-centered is really um, looking at the entire family and how the different subsystems uh, reinforce one another in a good or bad way, so for better or for worse. And that would be in contrast uh, um, to, say, um, a more maybe child-focused approach, would, which would be, okay, the child's, um, I'm going to see the child on um, Zoom and help the child with specific anxiety strategies, or a solely adult approach, okay, I'm going to work with the, the caregiver around the caregiver's mental health. And I'm not saying that, you know, those both are certainly important and they have a time and a place. So this is not family-centered instead of child-focused or caregiver-focused. But it's really important that we have um, families getting um, support as a unit um, because of how families are at risk right now and also how important that family cohesion is for um, helping children weather this, this storm. So when you're, you're saying caregivers, and that becomes very broad, I, I mm-hmm. come from a place, I used to work uh, with dementia, uh, people mm-hmm. who had dementia, so caregivers to me was always uh, the person who took care of the uh, elderly relative who mm-hmm. had dementia, or a husband, a wife, uh, but you're saying that simply by making sure my 20-year-old son has food and his diet doesn't consist of more than <gasps> 60% gummy worms, that I too am a caregiver. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I'm speaking primarily, I think those are good goals, by the way. Um, I'm speaking of, I'm speaking primarily of um, primary caregiver, guardian, um, like parenting role. So I, I, we use caregivers so that it can include, uh, you know, biological parents, non-biological parents, potentially grandparents. It's kind of all encompassing, but we're, we're talking about the person who's largely in charge of the child. But you, you speak to a good point. Um, this is important, I think, for all families, families of adult children, especially families like yours, where, not especially, but including families like yours where you're, where you're having um, 
it, it will look differently, of course, with uh, a 20-year-old versus a 5-year-old. But mm-hmm. similarly, you know, family, shared family values, strong family relationships, um, rituals, and so on and so forth uh, can be really helpful for uh, more mature families as well. Well, we've started a regular ritual now where uh, our other son is uh, out of the house. He's living with his girlfriend. But every Friday we do a games night over, uh, not Zoom, but something called Discord. So we all play mm-hmm. the same game together and uh, some friends of ours join in. And uh, that's become a regular Friday night thing to connect mm-hmm. with uh, the whole family, which has been pretty nice. It's uh, I'm one of those things that may actually continue when the whole thing's over. Mm-hmm. That that is so nice and I think it's so nice to see families doing things that they didn't do in any capacity before the pandemic right and I'm having that experience too I'm I'm catching up with friends who I went to university with who we didn't <laughs> catch up before um, but this is this is a bit of the before the pandemic and this is a bit of the reimagining right where we're we're figuring out what is it that we need right now. We need social connection. We need fun. We need a break from stress. Um, and how how can we get that? And people are being creative. And and I, I think the the service the services offered, you know, the different games, apps, and all that seem to be rising to the occasion as well. The you know, I, I find people saying, oh, I found, you know, we can play Settlers of Catan online now and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, or maybe that maybe that was all, already there. And I'm just I it probably was. But yes, we yeah. never would have uh, <laughs> gone out and looked for it beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I'm amazed about uh, that I never saw coming is that uh, our eldest son is calling for advice on cooking. And sometimes it's, you know, uh, what spices go well with you know, uh, pork chops and other times it's, can I pour bacon grease into a plastic bag? So, you know, we're, <laughs> we're getting there. It's, uh, but I never would have thought that that would have ever taken place, but now that's, uh, mm-hmm. a routine for he and his girlfriend, which is nice too. That's lovely. That's lovely. And yeah, I think, um, I, I have been hearing, of, uh, you know, anecdotally a, a lot of these nice niceties that are happening with families and, um, I think, you know, really what we're trying to do with this paper, it was, it, it, it was kind of we're striking a balance between, you know, this is a real, there's a risk for families right now, particularly those who are facing a number of disruptions due to um, job loss, financial instability, um, and uh, et cetera, or, you know, families who um, being confined to home brings a lot more stress being around one another with you know families with existing um problems in relationships and so on and so forth so this is a real risk that we need to look at and think about how you know we as professionals in mental health care but also uh, you know um as a government you know how are we going to support these families so this is the one side and the other was you know we wanted to keep a hopeful message because it's absolutely true that families are also going to be the most important thing like it's amazing what relationships family close family relationships and strong shared um positive belief systems within families what that can do to help protect children from severe adversity so so it's really both it's um 
it's, you know, families are facing significant threats and they can also help children experience, um, children get through this time. Well, so far, the one shared belief that my entire family has come upon is that dubstep is not real music. So we're going to expand <laughs> from there. Um, That's now, a good starting point. It's a good starting point. We've got something. Uh, when you went over all these previous studies, right, and there's a lot of uh, natural disasters, recessions, and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. is there any one event that is most comparable to this, that is uh, the most uh, illuminating when you look at what came out of it? Uh, you know, honestly, that's a that's a really tough question because I actually, I, and I wouldn't consider myself an expert on, you know, comparing this event to other events, but I, I don't think there is anything. Like each, each previous uh, historical adversity has similarities, significant similarities and significant differences. Um, so, you know, the economic upheaval during um, previous recessions um, is is similar in many ways, but also that didn't come with these um, considerable risks to public and personal medical, physical health. Right. Um, this is... nor, nor was it as widespread spread, you know, within um, local or global, uh, within local or global terms. Um, similarly, when you look at, um, the, you know, there's the differences when you think of uh, kind of a human-made disaster versus a natural disaster. Um, often the disasters are at, in a specific time at a specific location, um, whereas you know, this is uncertain how long it will go on for. So my short answer is I don't think there was, there could be one, um, at least that there's research on, you know, that we that we right. reviewed for this study. Um, I think that's why we really, we, we wanted to bring it all together um, rather than doing kind of a strict one-to-one comparison. We kind of said, you know, we looked at this literature. We also looked at the literature on, uh, cumul- cumulative risk. So families who experience multiple risks, um, often associated with poverty. And that's kind of like a slow um, accumulation of risk and the insidious um, threat to families. So even that, like that's much different than say a tsunami. Um, but we're pulling from these different literatures to try and get at, you know, what happens to families in the context of trauma and adversity. Right. And I mean, it ends up becoming a confluence of so many things. It's a natural mm-hmm. disaster and it's a, you know, a economic disaster and, you know, the mm-hmm. systemic poverty that previously existed compounds everything. And yeah, I, I exactly I can't imagine exactly. that there would be uh, any comparison in the last hundred years. Yeah, uh, not to not to my knowledge. And, and I, you know, I also want to acknowledge that the other um adversities that we compared it to have their own kind of uh, unique features, right, that would bring, um, you know, that are, are, are terrible in their own ways. So, but yeah, in terms of the vastness and the widespread impact, uh, the number of families who are um, having their lives really um, affected by this, I, I, I'm, I don't know of another comparison. So 
for a family that is struggling right now, that's uh, trying to just get by and uh, find a way to move forward through COVID-19, what general advice would you give to them? I think, um, you know, there's, there's this push pull of, of having the operating assumption that everyone is doing the best they can, you know, so we talk, you know, being accepting and compassionate towards one another while also expecting that we're all going to work together to get through this. So it doesn't mean that all rules and routines are being thrown out the window because we're all having a hard time. Um, And it also is important not to rigidly follow existing rules and routines that, um, you know, will just further stress us right now. So um, lending some grace to one another while also being really intentional about how are we as a family going to get through this together? Um, I talked about caregiver parenting stress as being a funnel and a a funnel of how COVID-19 may impact um, children, family relationships and children. So I think it's really important that parents are attuned to that um, and whether that means turning to one another, if you can, in the... um, in the coupleship and working on effective communication and problem solving together, coping together. Um, uh, but also for individual parents, finding ways to rejuvenate and care for yourself um, and, and drawing on social support in whatever way that looks, um, you know, while maintaining physical distancing. And there are, um, you know, that that would include getting telemental health support when needed. Here in Ontario, we have a disaster response network with the OPA, the Ontario Psychological Association, where there's a team of psychologists who are offering um, therapy services for minimal costs, in some instances pro bono. So, so I think seeking, you know, really caregivers, it's very important that um, they are attuned to how they're doing and seeking support when they need it. Um, Absolutely. And then, you know, once from there, well, not from there, simultaneously um, really thinking about ways for nourishing relationships, keeping meaningful traditions, creating new fe- meaningful traditions, um, and keeping some routines, uh, like I talked about. So uh, maintaining some structure, wake up in bedtime, meal times, you know, this is outdoor time, have a beginning and end of the day, um, and, and while keeping realistic goals for, for the family. Is that general enough? <laughs> that is general enough. Or... No, that is, uh, <laughs> that is wonderful. That's great. And uh, I think we can leave it on that. The paper is called Risk and Resilience in Family Well-Being During the COVID-19 Pandemic. It's available on the American Psychological Association's APA PsychNet. I'll put a link to it in the notes of this episode. And you can find uh, Dr. Heather Prime on Twitter at hprimepsych. Dr. Prime, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with thank- me today. Thanks, Eric. It was nice talking hey, to you. Dr. Take Prime, that's a, that sounds really cool, doesn't it? <laughs> like, I feel like if Superman goes bad and they call in somebody to stop him, it would that person's name would be Dr. Prime. <laughs> I, I like that. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> Superhero, the superhero psychologist. Absolutely, I think uh, I think there's a market for that. We'll, we'll <laughs> great. We'll do Thanks, a spinoff. Eric. 